Good afternoon, everyone. This last day, the last great day of the feast. When someone becomes sick, generally he seeks a remedy, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But is there a remedy for death? That's what I want to discuss in today's sermon. There are many... <laughs> Not really that funny, but <laughs> there are many ideas about death. Often they have in common the idea that when humans die, they don't really die, but continue to live a conscious existence somewhere, somehow. The Bible teaching is very clear about the state of the dead, but the Bible's clear teaching has been enshrouded in myths and superstitions. And so many people do not really understand what the Bible teaches about this subject. The ideas about an immortal soul continuing after death in heaven or in hell or in purgatory are common in popular Christianity. They're also found in various heathen religions and philosophies. Scriptures where the Bible mentions heaven or hell have had read into them ideas alien to Scripture, ideas adopted from pagan religions in the first centuries after Christ as church leaders turned from biblical teachings and embraced pagan concept, concepts in the guise of Christianity. <clears throat> no doubt many a tear has been shed by the loved ones of persons who have died thinking the dear departed is suffering in torment from which there is no hope of relief or respite. Even among those who do not believe, there is a literal hell. There is often little, if any, real understanding about death or how death may be remedied. But God does indeed have the remedy for death, and that is what this sermon is about. Understanding what death really is can help us understand better our own nature and that of our loved ones. It can help us better understand God and his plan for salvation, his purpose for mankind and how he will accomplish it. The Bible reveals that God created human beings with the, poten the potential to live for eternity as members of the divine family and that God will afford every human being the opportunity to fulfill the purpose for which he was created. The Bible tells us that all who have died will live again. And those who have not known God in this age will have an opportunity to come to know him in a future age. We're told in Scripture that human beings are made of the dust of the earth. Genesis 2 and verse 7. Genesis 2 and verse 7, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. God told Adam that if he disobeyed his commands that he would die. In Genesis 2 and verse 17 of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Adam was not created immortal 
but he did have the opportunity to receive the gift of immortality had he chosen to obey God. Having chosen the path of rebellion, God told Adam and Eve, the progenitors of mankind, that they would return to the ground. As we read in Genesis 3 and verse 19, For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And so, through sin, death passed upon all mankind. That is, all of us who are human die in the same manner as Adam. Now, while human beings are made of the elements of the earth, there is more to physical life than a collection of chemicals. Mere chemicals or dead matter do not of themselves have life. We saw on the film earlier in the week where they took a living cell, put it in a test tube with some water and maybe other chemicals, or at least water, and uh, punctured the cell and its contents drained out, was no longer living. All the chemicals were there that are common to that type of that particular type of life, but it was no longer living. It takes more than just chemicals to make something that lives. The well-known physicist Werner Heisenberg, like many scientists, recognized, quote, features of organic nature that are not contained in physics or chemistry, like the concept of life itself. He wrote that in Physics and Philosophy. He realized it takes more than just the chemicals and physical laws of nature to create life. Science itself, that is real science, as opposed to the empty speculation that often masquerades as science, has amply demonstrated that living things have not come into existence by chance, but that behind their existence is an intelligence that is a creator. The Bible reveals reveals that in addition to the physical, there is a spiritual dimension to human existence. As Job, as we read in the book of Job, God said to him, or maybe this is, was Elihu, I, I think it was Elihu in this case, said, uh, there is a spirit in man. There is a spirit in man. And without that spirit, there is no life. We read in Psalm 104 and verse 20, beginning with verse 29, Psalm 104 and verse 29, speaking of God, you hide your face, they are troubled, meaning the living creatures of the earth. You hide your face, they are troubled, you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. All living things have a a spiritual element that is necessary for life. Both the human spirit and and the breath of life, the chemical processes which support life, sustained by the intake of oxygen and other elements, the expulsion of wastes, are necessary for physical, uh, physical uh, human life to continue. 
So those chemical processes are necessary for our physical lives. The spirit that God gives us imparts life along with those processes, but that spirit in man is not itself a living entity or a living person. When life-sustaining chemical processes cease and the spirit departs, life ceases, and the body of flesh decays and returns to the dust. As we read in Job 34, beginning with, beginning with verse 14, If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. The spirit of a human person who dies returns to God who gave it at the point of death. As we read in Ecclesiastes 12 verse 7, then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So we have our fleshly bodies dependent on chemical processes for survival. We also have a spirit that returns to God and both are necessary for life. Humans do not have an immortal soul that continues to live as a conscious entity upon the death of the body. Scripture teaches in Ezekiel 18 and verse 4 and also in verse 20, the soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. And we're told in Romans 6 verse 23, Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. Wages of sin is death. It's not life continued somewhere else. It is death, a cessation of life, where life no longer continues. Now, the Hebrew word translated soul in the Old Testament is nephesh, and it can have a variety of meanings. It is used in Scripture of a living being or a living creature, including any creature made of flesh. It's used of various animal forms in the following verses. For example, in Genesis 1, verse 21, also verse 24 in Genesis 2 and verse 19. And Genesis 9 and verse 15 and, and others. When God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils, he became a living soul. <clears throat> As we read in Genesis 2 and verse 7 in the New King James, it's a living being. The same word, nephesh, is translated living being or living soul in the King James Version. So Adam became a living soul. It wasn't that he was a soul before God made him in the garden, but he became a living soul. So man does not have an immortal soul. Man is a living soul. He becomes a living soul at the time that his life begins. The word nephesh is also used of one's life of any life sustained by blood, including human physical life. For example, in Genesis 9, verses 4 and 5, and Exodus 4 and verse 19. The word nephesh is also used of persons. 
as in Genesis 14, we're not taking time to read all these because it would <clears throat> make too uh, long a sermon. But uh, Genesis 14, verse 21, 46 and verse 26, Exodus 1 and verse 5, where Nephesh is translated as, as a person. The term is even used in the sense of a dead body. A dead body in Leviticus 21, 11 and Numbers 6 and verse 6. In Psalm 16, beginning with verse 9, <clears throat> Psalm 16, verse 9 and 10, is a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ where we read, My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol. The word Sheol is a Hebrew word which means the grave, as we will see. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So, Jesus' soul, his body in this case, his dead body, was not left in the grave to decay. Now, we see, we see how this was fulfilled and this scripture is often misunderstood. But it's clearly explained how it was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22 where we read men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested by God to you by miracles wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands have crucified and put to death whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover my flesh will also rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. Hades is the Greek uh, equivalent of Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's quoting this psalm, which David wrote, where it says, <clears throat> You will not leave my soul in Hades or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, the corruption that follows death. Speaking of the decay of the flesh. And he says that the flesh of David is dead and buried. His tomb 
being evidence that David died and was buried and his soul was left there and saw corruption. By contrast, Jesus' body, his flesh, was not left in the grave to see corruption. But he was resurrected, having been in the grave only three days and three nights before decay had time to set in. And we read further in Acts 2, verse, beginning with verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear, that is the Holy Spirit. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Notice David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So David's soul, his flesh, was left in the grave to corrupt, to, to, to decay. But Jesus was not. He was resurrected within three days of his death. And we read in Acts 13, verse 29, Acts 13, verse 29, And when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, that is, Jesus Christ, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. And then, then in verse 35 of Acts 13, we read, Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Psalm of David, and this being Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he, that is Jesus Christ, whom God raised up, saw no corruption we have an article on our website called the truth about hell which goes into more detail on this subject of hell if you want to uh, read more about it in detail but the point is that hell is not a some imaginary place that people's immortal souls go to to suffer eternally after death hell is simply the grave and what happens is their souls go there to decay unless they're resurrected before that happens we find in the new testament that souls are subject to death in james 5 beginning with verse 19, James 5 and verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. 
he will save a soul from death. The Greek word is psuche, or life, or living being, from psuko, which means to breathe, and more or less the equivalent of the Hebrew word nephesh. So when one dies, his life ceases. But God has the power to restore life to the dead. He did that, for example, with his friend Lazarus. And so death is often likened to a sleep in Scripture. In, uh, in John chapter 11, beginning at verse 11, it says, These things he said, Jesus it's speaking of, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, will, he will get well. However, if, however, Jesus spoke of death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So Jesus spoke of death metaphorically as a sleep. Finally, he had to tell him, I'm not talking about sleep in the way that you normally think of it. Lazarus is dead, but it was spoken of metaphorically and is spoken of a number of times in the Bible as sleep. As God has the power to resurrect one from the dead, he also has the power to destroy one's life utterly and permanently. Jesus spoke of this permanent and irrevocable death as follows in Matthew 10 and verse 28. Matthew 10 and verse 20, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Again, we see the soul as something that can be killed. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, this death that he is speaking of, where the both the soul, the soul and body, <clears throat> meaning one's life, can be destroyed in hell, that is a reference to what is called the second death, as it's referred to elsewhere in Scripture. <clears throat> and the soul can be destroyed in hell. The word for hell in this case is the, the Greek word Gehenna. And which is a lake of fire. And it does not continue to exist there. It is destroyed. As is explained in further detail in the article I mentioned, The Truth About Hell. The ancient Egyptians in their idolatrous polytheistic religion came to believe that human consciousness continues after death. The Greeks commonly believed, as we read in The Pantheon, a book by Edward Baldwin, where he mentions that the Greeks quote, believe, quote, or, uh, quote, believe that the soul or thinking principle in man 
survived the destruction of the body, end quote. Similar beliefs were common among many other heathen nations of antiquity. But this is a pagan custom that, that has, is derived from false religion and ignorance concerning the truth about death. And these concepts were eventually absorbed into popular Christianity. But these ideas are not in accord, in accord with what the Bible itself teaches about death. The Bible teaches that in death, one has no remembrance of God and no capacity to praise God. As we read in Psalm 6 and verse 5, Psalm 6 and verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you in the grave who will give you thanks. In Psalm 30 and verse 9, Psalm 30 and verse 9, What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? According to Scripture, when one dies, as we read in Psalm 146 and verse 4, his breath goes forth, he returns to his earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. That's from the King James Version. And in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 5, we read, The dead know nothing. The dead know nothing. In Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 10, it says, There is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave. So the dead have no awareness of the affairs of the living, nor any power to directly influence them. We read in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 6, Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 6, their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Now in this verse, nevermore, or as it is in the King James Version, forever, is from the Hebrew olam, which may mean forever in the sense that we might think of the concept, or may mean a period of long or indefinite duration, depending on the context. Now the Bible says that all who have died shall be made alive again. So in this case, olam means for the duration of time until a resurrection in another age. But until that time, there is no conscious existence for the one who's died. As I mentioned earlier, death is frequently linked, uh, likened to a sleep in Scripture, as like a person in a deep sleep, there is a lack of awareness. And so we read in Psalm 13 and verse 3, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And we read in Job 14, beginning in verse 12, Job 14, verse 12, when one dies, he sleeps in the grave till he is called back to life. So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? 
All the days of my hard service I will wait until my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire, desire the work of your hands. As we've seen, one spirit returns to God at the time of death, but that is not the same as a conscious soul going to heaven to continue living. We, re we read that in Acts 2 and verse 29, uh, that uh, David is not in heaven. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is dead, both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to, to this day. And in verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens. In fact, no one has ascended into heaven except Jesus, we're told, in John chapter 3 and verse 13. John 3 and verse 13, 13 John wrote, No one has ascended to heaven, <clears throat> but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now the phrase, who is in heaven, he's quoting Christ here, but this phrase, who is in heaven, is apparently a parenthetical expression added by John to the words of Jesus to, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, clarify the fact that Jesus himself was, at the time John wrote this, in heaven. Jesus had ascended into heaven by the time this gospel was written and he did ascend to heaven 40 days after his resurrection. So of all humans at this time only Jesus has immortality because at present he alone has been resurrected to eternal life. He alone is the one who has ascended to heaven and uh, did so having been resurrected from the dead. We read in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16, that speaking of Jesus Christ, who alone has immortality, who alone has immortality. If he alone has immortality, that means nobody else has it. including all those people who have died and are supposed by many to have gone up to heaven to live with God. They don't have immortality because that's a fable. Jesus Christ alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Revelation 1 and verse 18, Jesus said in this vision that John had, that, God, that Christ gave to him, Jesus Christ here is speaking and he says, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades or the grave and of death. Jesus Christ has the keys that can unlock the grave. While death to many 
may seem to have an awful finality to it, the good news is that there is a remedy for death. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Notice it says, as in Adam all die, that's all human beings descended from Adam. And even so, in Christ, all shall be made alive. That means every human being who has lived and died will be made at some time, some point in time, they will be made alive. And that includes all the vast bulk of mankind who have not found salvation in this age or in this lifetime. They will be resurrected at the time set for this by God. And there are a series of resurrections mentioned in the Bible. The first resurrection, as it's called, occurs at the time of Christ's second coming. Of course, Christ himself was resurrected before that, but this is referred to as the first resurrection for others. And it occurs at the time of Christ's second coming, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 17, or let's begin with verse 16, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Notice that fallen asleep here is, again, a metaphor used of death. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So notice that if there is no resurrection, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And what that tells us, or ought to tell us, if we're actually uh, reading this carefully, is that the hope beyond this life for those who are truly converted and faithful to God in this age is the resurrection. It is not our soul going to heaven. There's no support for such a concept in Scripture. In verse 15, Of Acts 24, Acts 24 and verse 15, Paul was speaking to some people and he said, uh, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, speaking of uh, his adversaries among some of the Jews, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Notice what his hope was in. 
Paul said his hope was in the resurrection. He didn't say his hope was in going to heaven when he died. His hope is in the resurrection. The first resurrection is a resurrection not to physical life, or I should say physical flesh and blood, but to immortality with a spiritual body. And we read in verse 6, beginning in verse 6 of Revelation 20, Revelation 20 and verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Going on in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 42, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, it says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. When we are resurrected, we will be bodily resurrected with not a natural or physical body of flesh and blood, but a spiritual body. And he affirms the fact that there is, verse 44 here, a natural body and there is a spiritual body. In other words, we won't be just some apparition sort of floating around like uh, like a, a puff of smoke or something of that sort, we will have a body, a form that can be touched, that can be seen, and so forth. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. In Philippians 3, <clears throat> beginning verse 20, we read Philippians 3 and verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Notice he says our citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't say he is in heaven. He wasn't in heaven at the time. He was on the earth. And when he wrote this, but he said, our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, it is in the kingdom of God. We are citizens of God's kingdom, which has not been established on the earth in its fullness yet. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So when is this going to occur? As we read in the context, it will occur when Christ comes to us from heaven. Now, the rest of the dead that Paul wrote about or that uh, are mentioned in uh, Revelation 20, uh, rather, uh, 
20 and verse 5, the rest of the dead, Paul wrote about the those who are Christ at the first resurrection. But what about the rest of the dead? And Revelation 20 and verse 5 tells us that it will not be until a thousand year period following Christ's second coming that they will be, the rest of the dead will be resurrected, restored to life. What that means is that they are dead. They're not alive in heaven and they're not alive in an imaginary cauldron of fire that many conceive of as hell. It says in verse 5 of Revelation 20, the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, the first resurrection being the resurrection that precedes that thousand year period. So they will not live until the thousand years are finished. If they don't, do not live until then, that means they're not alive now. They're not up in heaven alive and they're not down in, in uh, what people conceive of as a hell fire. And they're not alive in purgatory. They're not alive anywhere. They're dead. But after that thousand year period called the millennium is a second or general physical resurrection whereupon the dead stand before God and are judged. Having been resurrected out of their graves in Revelation 20 and verse 11, Revelation 20 and verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The word Bible means books. The books that we the books that we are judged by, collectively called the Bible, that's what they'll be judged by. God's word but they will have their opportunity to have their names written in the book of life meaning the book of eternal life salvation <clears throat> the sea gave up the dead who were in it death and Hades or the grave delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works so they will have a chance to repent and be judged based on their works at that time, having had revealed to them the knowledge of God and the purpose of life and what God requires of them. In John 7 and verse 37 <clears throat> John 7 and verse 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit. 
those people will have a chance to repent and be uh, recipients of God's Spirit. And this resurrection is primarily what is pictured by this day that we're observing today, the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Or not Unleavened Bread, but of Tabernacles. And uh, Ezekiel 37 We read about this occasion. Ezekiel 37, beginning with verse 1. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around. Behold, there were very many in the open valley, and, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet and an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. Now this is a physical resurrection that involves flesh and bones and breath. It's not a resurrection to immortality. It is a physical resurrection. But it is a resurrection where these people will come to know God, having been resurrected from the dead. And then in verse 14, it says, I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land then you shall know that I, the Lord, has, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. In this period of judgment that will ensue upon this resurrection, those who have been resurrected at that time will be taught of God. They'll have an opportunity to repent and be free of Satan's influence and be judged according to what they do with that knowledge. 
We read about this in John 6 and verse 45. John 6 and verse 45. As it, as it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. So Jesus said they will all be taught by God. Have all people been taught by God today? Many have had a chance to be taught by God, but they have refused to be taught. But there's a time coming when everyone will be taught by God. And uh, no one is going to escape having the witness of the truth of God's word given to them when it's all said and done. Paul wrote about Israel's future in Romans chapter 11. Romans 11 and verse 20. Paul said, because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. He was writing to the church and especially to the Gentiles. In this case, when he said, you stand by, uh, they were broken off, you stand by faith. But do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, all, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Speaking of the Israelites who rebelled against God and were cut off. For if you were cut off, cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, whereas you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they may also obtain mercy." For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. What he's saying here is that all humanity, Gentiles and Israelites alike, for the most part, not every single one, but the vast majority, have been committed to disobedience, given up to disobedience. 
so that he might have mercy on all. And so they, as he said, that they may all be saved, meaning the vast majority, not every single one, uh, but the vast majority will be saved of Israelites, and the same principle applies to Gentiles as well. Following the judgment of the general resurrection, death and hell themselves will be, in a sense, cast into the lake of fire, hell being the grave, along with the incorrigibly wicked, that is, those who have refused to repent despite being given every reasonable opportunity, and those will suffer the second death. As we read in Revelation 20, beginning with, with verse 14, then death and Hades, or the grave, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so this will be the end of death for human beings. After that, no one who has been human will die. Revelation 21 and verse 7. Revelation 21 and verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son. <clears throat> but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. In other words, all who refuse to repent of their sins, who continue in this path of ungodliness, will, after having been witness to and given an opportunity to change, will be cast into the lake of fire. And then only those made righteous in God's sight will remain. As we read in Revelation 21 and verse 23, Revelation 21, verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the book's Lamb of, the Lamb's book of life. And then Revelation 21 and verse 4, There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So contrary to what many might assume, there is a remedy for death. Every human being, including those who have not found salvation in this age, will have an opportunity to take advantage of that remedy because God is just and merciful. And so we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And then in verse 54, we read, 
when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O, o Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.